Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Otteramus Bulletin. In this episode, we speak with the editor of Otteramus, Chris Carsons, about a recent article about Latin and the liturgy. You can find this article at otteramus.org, and it is written by Paul Sands. So without further ado, another Otteramus interview. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Good, Jesse. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, it was good to see you at the, the recent uh, SEL uh, conference in yeah. Minnesota. That was yeah. great to see a bunch yeah. of old friends and to talk about nerdy liturgy stuff. And Yeah, the Society for Catholic Liturgy is a, is a great group. They're doing uh, uh, some very good things. We were at its annual conference in St. Paul. And uh, you're right. Talked to a lot of, actually a lot of Otteramus authors, didn't we? <laughs> and uh, I'm glad to say I lined up uh, some new authors and some uh, former authors and so a lot of good content uh, coming in out of Ramus in the uh, year ahead. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we want to talk today about kind of a, a different type of article that you usually do. This is kind of an interview about a specific topic. So we're talking about uh, Latin and the liturgy. And, uh, and my first question, and by the way, this is an article, uh, it's titled Special Report, State of Latinity in the Roman Liturgy. Liturgical and Latin experts see small but growing interest in the in reintegrating Latin into the mass, you got to work on those titles, bud. Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, the title or the whole yeah, story? That's the name. That's the name of the oh, okay. title here. And uh, uh, this was uh, this was done by Paul Sens. And so uh, this is kind of a new thing, very interesting. I'd love to hear a little bit about why this is. Uh, why did you want to have this article done right now and this way? Yeah, so you're right. Most of the pieces that we run in Adoramus are a single piece by a particular author. This is more of an interview news story piece by uh, Paul Sens, who works uh, works for Ignatius Press, among other places. But I asked him to write this uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because uh, the 60th anniversary of Sacrosanctum Concilium is this uh, December, right? And maybe we make too much of these anniversaries, you know, all the time. But it, I mean, it's significant. I mean, you talk about the liturgy today. A big part of that conversation is going to be the Second Vatican Council and Sacrosanctum Concilium. So that was one. Uh, you know, another thing that comes up in liturgical conversations is the extraordinary form versus ordinary form or preconciliar versus postconciliar books in the place. Uh, and, you know, Latin's a big part of that. And, you know, what might be done, uh, if anything, let's say to you know, if, if folks who were attending the extraordinary forum find that difficult to do now because there's lack of maybe access, you know, what might ordinary form or the conciliar celebrations look like that might be uh, make it more conducive or receptive to, to somebody like that? And two, or third, rather, uh, is translations still are the, the name of the liturgical game these days, right? So the uh, we had the rite of penance. Uh, translated earlier this year, the the rite of initiation of adults coming out, the second edition of the the breviary coming out, and these are really matters of translation. So the language question, and especially coming the Latin question, continues to be a significant one in liturgical thinking today. You talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, we talk in liturgy a lot about prescription and permission, and you know all these types of things. So just uh, in a kind of a straight way, Latin is. Um, is Latin permitted now? Is it prescribed now? Is vernacular prescribed but permitted? How, how can you navigate that for us? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's been the the million dollar question over the last sixty years. So, what I asked Paul to do was uh, to go back to well, what actually did the council say and not say about Latin and vernacular in the literature, right? Because this continues to be a bit of a mis uh, uh, misperception. 
So uh, if you go back to the text, uh, it says a couple of things. On the one hand, and it says this in a number of places, right? It talks about language in general, then it talks about it in the mass, then it talks about it in the other sacramentals, and it talks about it in the office. So it, it occurs in a number of places. But in general, what the council had to say is that uh, in masses which are celebrated with the people, a suitable place may be allotted to the mother tongue, right? So vernacular is uh, allowed, okay? Um, at the same time, uh, it, so it's the use of how it was used can be extended. Now, this is an interesting thing too. Uh, it, we, we ran a piece by uh, a fellow named Nico Ficino in the last few uh, uh, AB Insights on vernacular in uh, the sacramentals, right? And so it's a little bit of a, you know, especially those of us who don't have a lot of memory of what uh, the liturgy was like prior to the council, you might think that everything was Latin, there was nothing in the vernacular. Well, if we were to a marriage rite, for example, 1962, I, I'd venture to guess 70, 80% of it would actually be in the vernacular prior to the council. So there was vernacular in the liturgy, maybe not in the mass, but in the other sacraments, right? So this had been, they were both included prior to the council. What the council says is that the use of the vernacular can be extended even in the mass, right? So that's one thing, but it balances this against the fact that the use of Latin in the Latin church uh, is kind of normative. That's that's the mother tongue of the church. And that even though vernacular can be introduced, uh, that the constitution on the sacred liturgy will say that steps should be taken, that the faithful be able to sing or say in Latin those parts that pertain to them, the ordinary of the mass, for example. So I think, in fact, I've had people tell me this. No, no, the Second Vatican Council uh, uh, proscribed uh, eliminated, forbade the use of Latin. Quite the contrary. It says explicitly that the laity in 2023 celebrating the ordinary form should be able to sing or say in Latin the ordinary of the Mass. So that's at least what uh, the document itself has to say. It seems like incredibly simple when you look at it. You know, the things that you're used to saying and you are so repetitive, you hear it all the time, can be in Latin because you kind of understand what that means. But anything that's different, and I think this would apply, you, like you said, with the marriage, right? You know, you're, gonna, you're not going to a wedding, you know, every weekend. And so uh, it would make sense that some of that is in vernacular because you want to be able to understand what's going on or a baptism or certainly a confession uh, <laughs> so, that, so that you know that you uh, are properly absolved and things like that. Uh, we're, we're pretty far removed from the council, now, right? And so some people say, hey, uh, this might be kind of uh, impossible to get back to uh, these prescriptions or anything like that. Plus, we have, you know, things changing all the time. A big thing in America right now is how to incorporate or integrate Spanish-speaking, you know, parishioners into uh, an, an English-speaking parish. So how does that work? Uh, what can we do to, to get back to some of this and to start to integrate Latin more? Yeah, well, I think that... Um... I think the, f the first step is, you know, just to go back and say, what what's the mind of the church on this, right? Not your Dawson liturgy director's mind, not your pastor's mind, not your music directors or your parish worship committee's mind. What does the church actually have to say about that? Because there are a great deal of, uh, of uh, misunderstandings about that. So th I think that would be the first thing. Uh, I think another thing is that, you know, to try to understand 
that the place of the Latin and the vernacular balances two goods of the church. Uh, the one, sort of uh, universality and unity and unicity. So maybe in my parish there are Hmong-speaking Catholics and Spanish-speaking Catholics and English-speaking Catholics. Uh, and I don't speak Hmong or Spanish at all. Uh, but, you know, all of us can sort of tap into that common patrimony that we have and sing some of these parts, say some of these parts in Latin, and it becomes a sign of and a bond of unity between uh, uh, diverse uh, cultures. So that'd be the second thing. Um, but, you know, the, the third thing, too, is to recognize that, you know, the, the, the vernacular in the liturgy is a good thing. I mean, um, God is, uh, our Redeemer is a word, and he wants to be heard and understand and grasp. Now, not exhaust exhaustively. I mean, there's going to be an element of mystery that is no word can ever contain, but the word of, of, of the incarnation and salvation history and now of the liturgy is, um, although transcendent and mysterious, is meant to be encountered and known. And so the vernacular allows that to happen. You know, so if you think, maybe I'm getting too far, I should let you ask the questions here, Jesse. Um, you know, take take a mass. I mean, you know, sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. I understand what that means. My 10-year-old understands what that means. My grandma understands what that means. But uh, something like the readings, I mean, I, I'm just not going to understand. I'm going to stand that. And the church wants me to understand that. And God wants me to understand that. So I think the use of both the Latin and the vernacular, as I say, holds together some very reasonable goods uh, that the church has. And so I think part of it has to do, before you get to sort of practical applications, part of it has to do with the mentality and making our minds you know, reflect not what we might like or dislike, but the church's mind. Let's let's get to some of that practicality, because I think that's really important. And it, you know, mentioned in this article about some of those you know, practicalities, like coming in hot and just saying, Hey guys, we're going to, we're going to do this, uh, Latin all day, every day. Uh, that's not the best way to go about this. So how do we, uh, practically re, uh, incorporate Latin, uh, into the mass at the parish level? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think after this, what I think would be a suitable catechesis, how are you actually going to go about it? I think you need to know uh, your your parish or your community or whatever it it may be, right? So, um, you know, a closed community of uh, religious who pray together for four hours every day is going to have a certain formation and and competence and com uh, comfort, I think, with with some of these things. Versus, you know, my own parish, say in rural Wisconsin, you know, we, we just we just have different type of liturgical formation. So, I think the first thing that uh, a pastor ought to know is all right. You know who are my who are my people? You know who who is it that I that I'm serving, and what is their level of formation and understanding and things like that. I mean, this is a this is pastoral in the truest sense of the word. Uh, you know, who are the people I'm trying to lead to God? Um, but I think one thing that that can be done, uh, let, let's say in a rural Wisconsin parish or a suburban Chicago parish or something like that. Again, you've got 55 minutes worth of text going on. And not that we're talking all the time. We shouldn't be. There should be a lot of silence and things like that. There are certain things that are more um, accessible and understandable and sayable and singable. You know, as I was mentioning before, the, the ordinary of the Mass 
So the Kyrie, which is in Greek, um, is is something that, you know, if you say it, it's Kyrie eleison every mass. There's not, you know, ten different versions of that. You know, it's a it's a single set of words in in Greek, or the Gloria, or the Sanctus, okay? or the uh, Agnus Dei, things like that. These uh, uh, these are repetitious and familiar and sort of lend themselves to. You know, bringing forward some of the great tradition that uh, the church has, right? uh, versus some of the changeable parts, the propers, for example, say the readings or the antiphons or things like that. Um, you know, those don't lend themselves to to quick understanding. So I think if you once you know your audience, call them that, and then you uh, then you look at all the texts, some of them actually lend themselves to being said or sung in Latin, and uh, others don't. And I, I, I might say, sorry, I might say maybe one other thing. There's some of the great hymns that that the church uses, uh, you know, Tantu Merga, right in this time, at least in the United States, of Eucharistic revival, uh, you know, uh, O Salutaris Hostia, uh, Tantum Ergo, things like that. Some of the hymns, right, because hymns tend to be, you know, easier to sing or say, and they get sticky and they, they, they kind of keep in your mind. So we've talked a little bit about the what and the details there. We've talked a little bit about the how. We kind of glossed over a little bit of the why, but you know what I'd really like to talk about, and it kind of gets into the article a little bit about you know the fruits of this and and how this can be almost a, an apologetic or even evangelization uh, evangelization type of um, relationship and discipleship and mystagogy and all of that. So you know we all understand you know the mass celebrated. Uh, the most reverently and, and perfectly possible can will result in transfiguration. We get all of that, but mm-hmm. at a real, you know, practical level at the parish, what are the what are the fruits that we can start to see as we start to think about these things the way the church wants us to think about them? Mm-hmm. Wow, great question. Um, you know, I think presuming that you know uh, individuals and parishioners, you know, can incorporate this with a with a docile mind and, and an open heart. So I think some of the things that uh, can result is that we be we we come to appreciate our patrimony a little bit that you know the church wasn't invented 60 years ago or 50 years ago. It has deep roots with a great variety of, of history but uh, that these texts you know maybe these texts that we say or or pray are a thousand years old. And that our that our grandparents and great grandparents prayed along with us, so it it gives us a greater appreciation of where we've come from. Uh, secondly, I think it gives us a greater sort of bond to the church, right? Because um, yeah, in our private prayers, like your family prayers at the end of the day, or my family's prayers at the end of the day, they're as unique as as our two families are, and they should be, and they're supposed to be. Um, but uh, when we come together as uh, to worship in a body. You know, we belong to something much greater, and I think the the use of sort of the mother's mother tongue uh, helps helps us to appreciate that. And it it uh, you know, Pope Francis says this thing a number of times in, I think it's Desiderio Desideravi that these liturgical questions are at the same time ecclesial questions, and this should make sense because the council would say that the church is in her most visible self during the celebration of the liturgy. So. You know, to to appreciate, uh, you know, the use of both Latin and vernacular in the churches, I think uh, an ecclesial question, it helps our, our bonds uh, to the church. 
And the more closely, I guess, maybe finally, that we are to to the church, we the the more enlivened we are, we become living members of the body of Christ. Um, and two, you know, you alluded to this in your question. Maybe a fourth thing is that, you know, when you when you personally talk to God, you talk to Him in any way you want to, or maybe you don't talk at all. Maybe you sing to Him. Maybe it's just silence. But in a, a corporate prayer, there's a certain elevated language that reflects the the gloriousness of the mystery. Now, again, it doesn't. It still has to manifest the mystery. I think sometimes. Uh, maybe we tend to think, oh, well, God's mysterious, so we shouldn't understand him. And if the language is uh, uh, incomprehensible, well, that's a good uh, uh, linguistic sign of God. Nah, that's that, I don't think that's how it works. The The word of the Trinity is meant to be proclaimed. You know, the plan of the mystery is meant to be known. But it's all the same, you know, the language that we use when we pray can reflect more clearly or sort of diminish more severely, the the mystery being celebrated. So I think, you know, a, a proper use, and by proper, I don't mean according to Adoramus or Chris or Jesse, according to what the church thinks and has expressed in her documents, a proper use of both the Latin and the vernacular will improve our liturgies, will improve our our churches, our parishes, uh, and our and our own sanctity. Well, I think that's absolutely marvelous, and couldn't agree more. And uh... You know, obviously, that that last question, you know, you could get into uh, uh, social regeneration, like a, a myriad of other things that are a result of really looking at, at the Mass and understanding and, and participating in the way that the Church has envisioned us to. And in, in a lot of ways, we'll never, on an individual level, be perfect at that. But as a corporate body of Christ, uh, that that is the norm. So... Uh, and, and and Latin being the unifying language for all of, all of us human beings, I think is is beautiful. So uh, so Chris, thank you so much for for having the sense to uh, have an article put together and some and some question and answer from some amazing minds. So if you want to read the the full article, it's on adoramus.org. It's really good. I would highly recommend anybody uh, check it out. So thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you, Jesse.